It's about talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion and having the difficult conversations. And sometimes people are receptive and sometimes they're not. Sometimes people think that they're receptive and they're really not. But but it's at least from my perspective, being true to what my values are and what I think is important for any workforce to to hold as valuable. The workforce landscape is rapidly changing, and educators and their institutions need to keep up. Preparing students before they enter the workforce to make our communities and businesses stronger is at the core of getting an education. But we need to understand how to change and adjust so that we can begin to project where things are headed before we even get there. So how do we begin to predict the future? Hi, I'm Salvatrice Kumo, Executive Director of Economic and Workforce Development at Pasadena City College and host of this podcast. And I'm Christina Barsi, producer and co-host of this podcast. And we are starting the conversation about the future of work. We'll explore topics like how education can partner with industry, how to be more equitable, and how to attain one of our highest goals, more internships and PCC students in the workforce. We at Pasadena City College want to lead the charge in closing the gap between what our students are learning and what the demands of the workforce will be once they enter. This is a conversation that impacts all of us, you the employers, the policymakers, the educational institutions, and the community as a whole. We believe change happens when we work together, and it all starts with having a conversation. I'm Christina Barsi. And I'm Salvatrice Kumo, and this is The Future of Work. What does equity, diversity, and inclusion mean to you? How does it show up and affect you in your life? If you haven't asked yourself this question before, or even if you have, then you are in for a treat. I fill in for Salvatrice this episode and speak with attorney Sylvia Torres-Guillen, one of our amazing panelists you have to look forward to in our upcoming virtual Future of Work conference on November 9th. She is Harvard University and UC Berkeley Law educated and has a reputation as a force for justice, having achieved exceptional results in federal, state, criminal, civil cases, and over 40 federal trials. Sylvia dives deep with me to explain how DEI is part of the fabric of our lives and how each of us can participate towards a more equitable workforce and society. Here's my conversation with Sylvia. Hi, welcome back to The Future of Work. I'm Christina Barsi filling in for Salvatrice today, and we are here to have a discussion with one of our upcoming panelist participants for the Pasadena City College's Virtual Future of Work Conference on November 9th. I'm here with attorney Sylvia Torres-Guillen. She has held numerous prestigious positions in both public and private practice. As the ACLU's Director of Education Equity, Ms. Torres-Guillen obtained a $171 million settlement to benefit Los Angeles County's highest need students. As Governor Jerry Brown's first Latina general counsel, where she tirelessly sought justice for the state's 800,000 farm workers. In 2018, the California State Bar named Ms. Torres-Guillen the California Lawyer of the Year. That's an amazing resume. Welcome, Sylvia. Thank you so much, Christina. It's wonderful to be a part of your program. Thank you for for joining us here in addition to your participation in, in the upcoming conference on November 9th. I know I just mentioned a few bullet points and some amazing accomplishments that you've that you've done so far, but I would love to hear more from you about the work you do and just a little more about how you approach your work and why it's so important. 
Thank you, Christina. Well, I really see my work as centered on um, social justice and civil rights. And whether it's been as a federal public defender, which is a career that was before I was appointed by the governor to run the Agricultural Labor Relations Board and my work at the ACLU, I was there for 20 years and that was really about social justice, criminal justice for the most marginalized community really and, and people who are often disenfranchised and overlooked or frowned upon and seen as the least among us, but who really deserves a kind of advocacy and protections that the Constitution requires that they have. The other thing about the work that I've done my whole career is it's always had a racial justice frame. I'm originally from Boyle Heights in East LA, and so I see the privilege that I've received in terms of the education that I was fortunate enough to have that has enabled me to have this current career really has made me want to always give back to my community and our communities of color. And so I really try to make sure that uh, my work is centered on racial justice and social justice and civil rights, no matter where I go. That's wonderful. It's it's so interesting how our personal stories really do inform how we make choices moving forward in our lives. So thank you for sharing that. Why is it so important, though, for anyone who's listening, who maybe doesn't have a personal connection yet? Why is it important for us to pay attention to these these areas that are being underserved? Uh, Because if we really care about equity or equality or justice, then we have to give meaning to those words. Right. So, for example, when I was at the Agricultural Labor Relations Board, one of the mandates that I was given by the governor is to really make sure that the law has meaning. So if the laws are intended to protect farm workers, if no one's there to enforce them, then the laws have no meaning, beautiful or not. So if we care about creating laws to ensure justice, then we need to make sure that we're honoring that obligation And for those of us who have the privilege of doing that, then we need to step up and make sure that it happens. And if we don't, then who will? So it's not just um, something that's important to do. It's something that I feel that is important for every single person to do. And everybody can play a role, whether it's uh, someone who has, as we've discussed, you know, a personal story that connects us to the work Mm -hmm. or someone who can be an ally. And one of the things that I've loved about the conversations that have been happening most recently is the sense of allyship and the sense of allyship being more than a a cheerleader, right? Like, yes, that's great that you want to cheer me on, but if you're there by my side or if you're pushing the same agenda and other people hear you because of the color of your skin, for example, or the position that you hold, then that's really how we can move our, our, our country forward. We could make sure that all of us have the kinds of Um, rights and opportunities that we really want for everybody to have. That's wonderfully put. I have to ask, how can someone be a really good ally? You know, it it depends on where you're at and just so many different ways. Um, At work, for example, since we're talking about workforce, for example, if somebody's talking about diversity, right? If you're in a room and it's a table of all white men and you know that there's no woman at the table or you see only one woman at the table and she's made a point and people have overlooked what she said Mm. right and then they a man says it and repeats the same thing but all of a sudden it's heard then the ally can say oh that's exactly what she said (laughs) right (laughs) you know something as simple as giving voice to the people who are voiceless who shouldn't be voiceless because they're 
one at the table, but even if they're not at the table, give them a voice. Um, if you're talking about diversity, it shouldn't just be the people of color who are talking about the value of diversity because everybody benefits from it. So here's an opportunity for you to be an ally and to either raise it first or second or third, the comments that are just made or add to them so that people know that one, they're not alone and that they don't have to be the only spokesperson on these issues. So really finding room to let people feel not alone when they're in situations like you just described, I think is a good takeaway. And I I only laughed when you said that scenario because it's so common and it happens all the time. And I am a woman and I've experienced that. That one resonated with me. Yes. And even in my daughter's schools, they have DEIB ambassadors, right? And the ambassadors, are it's a way of actually making sure that there's ownership for the work that needs to happen. And it's not just people of color, but it's white allies. And it could be white allies and people of color. But it's good to, to have these positions when people own the work and actually do it. Yes. Very well put. Again, it's about the action. And that's actually what this conference is trying to focus on this year. We talked a lot about raising awareness and kind of just bringing attention to these issues that have been around for a very, very long time, but shining more light on them is what we were doing last year. And this year, we want to focus more on the action piece and talk with people like you that do this work on a regular basis so that we can learn how to better apply that in our own situations at work, whether we are an employer or an employee. So just to shift into that a little bit, why is it so important to talk about this now? And how does it, how do these action pieces, how are they going to fuel our our future workforce? Well, I think it's important to talk about it now, but I think it's always been important. It's only that now people are paying a little bit more attention to it or, the conversation is rising to the top. But it's it's something that, certainly for me as a person of color, I have raised these issues as long as I can remember. Uh, Every career, it's always about diversity. It's always about equity and inclusion. And it's only now that we're talking about belonging, but it's always been, without us having articulated it that way, about belonging. Because that's really the only way you can continue with the progress or from a workforce perspective, for example, retention. You said it's about belonging. Do you mean like belonging at the table, like being able to be part of the conversation and moving things forward? Yeah, it's it's about knowing that you actually deserve to be in that place and that others see you as someone who deserves to be there, should be there, is part of the family, basically. It's like a cultural shift. Yes, it really is. And I, I went to a private boarding school and there were very few people of color. And so... You know, I've heard other people talk about when they were there, they felt that they had to change who they were in order to feel that they belonged. From my perspective, I felt like I couldn't be white, right? I couldn't be somebody else other than who I am. So belonging to me meant including or accepting me for who I was. Some people feel that the only way that they belong is by shifting and transforming or becoming someone other than who they are or denying that piece of them. Right. That is such a good piece to mention here because there is a lot of the this idea of assimilation mm-hmm. and what that really means when it's put to action when there is an acceptance that comes with that assimilation right 
Yeah, assimilation or elimination, right? It's right. not just assimilating, but you eliminate who you are, your culture, your history, your family. Right. And that's not okay. Right. No, I'm a Hungarian immigrant, and my parents chose to stop teaching me my native language in fear that I would have an accent and wouldn't be, wouldn't belong, wouldn't be accepted. So that has always felt a little bit of, of a burden to me because I didn't get to make that choice and wish I had that choice to make for myself. But it, it comes from this deep stemming of fear of not belonging. So it's interesting that it's really a cultural shift that you're speaking to that is nuanced. And it's has to come from all of the areas that we are approaching it from. And as long as I think each of us have some kind of focus around the DEI efforts, then it really starts to work together. Exactly. You're, abso- you're absolutely right. I mean, it has to be a communal effort so that people don't feel like they can't teach your native tongue. They can't teach you your native tongue. You know, that is, I, I like how you said that, that it's a, uh, that's something that you didn't get to choose. That wasn't a decision that you get to make, you got to make. Yeah. So I, I like that we're talking about it from this place of everyone needs to have the conversation because that is what the conference is about. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to generate a conversation that is guided so that when we go and attend virtually and experience this, we can learn and walk away with new perspectives, hopefully, and actionable pieces we can take home. So can you just share with us a little bit about how the work you do specifically can does contribute to creating more equity in the workforce? I know we talked a lot about your accomplishments. You've done so much. But can you just help us learn a little more about what maybe is next for you in, in your equity efforts? You know, I, I really feel that equity follows me everywhere I go um, or the equity conversation follows me wherever I go because I'm so aware of it. Mm-hmm. One of the really blessings that I had was when the governor appointed me to run a state agency, the Agricultural Labor Relations Board. It put me in a position of leadership that enabled me to make decisions for the entire agency, which was you know five offices throughout the state of California. So when I think about, you know, equity in the workforce, it's about who are we hiring? Um, what are the criteria? What uh, are the services that we're trying to provide uh, to whom and how best to do it? You know, I was very lucky to be able to hire a very, very diverse workforce, a workforce that actually served the community that we were there to serve. So I hired so many Spanish speaking lawyers um, I hired a Misteco-speaking investigator, someone who spoke an indigenous language. It was the first time that the agency has ever hired anyone who was an indigenous speaker. Wow. So just being conscious of the need and addressing the need from an equity standpoint, from a culturally sensitive standpoint, was something that I'm really proud of. And I did that you know, alongside you know, a wonderful ally who I was just talking to earlier today, Alegria de la Cruz. And, you know, we really saw this as a collaborative effort to to bring in a workforce that was diverse, that did really serve the community that we intended to serve. And I'd have conversations with like the Department of Finance about how I wanted to make sure that when farm workers walked into the workforce, into our offices, that we had lawyers 
who were there who would be able to talk to them and speak with them about their issues and try to have a holistic approach to service. And where I was asked, you know, why can't they just be met with a receptionist or an investigator to express the need to have someone who is a lawyer and how important that is culturally as well. It was something that I think is important. And I, I was very grateful that I had that opportunity to be in that place of leadership. Uh, but we don't always have those opportunities, right, to lead a whole agency or to really be in charge of all HR decision-making for mm-hmm. an entity. So then it's how do you bring in that that lens into other places where you aren't necessarily in charge of all of the HR decisions? And so where I've gone after that, whether it's the ACLU or uh, in other law firms, it's about talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and having the difficult conversations. And sometimes people are receptive, and sometimes they're not. Sometimes people think that they're receptive, and they're really not. Mm. So, but but it's at least, from my perspective, kind of being true to what my values are, and what I think is important for any workforce to to hold as valuable. That's amazing, and, and it is... The more you, I listen and we and we share this conversation, the more I really see how it's just a part of who you are, and it's it's just deep in in how you live your life and each opportunity you are participating in, it becomes part of the conversation for you. So that's wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, and it really helps me see how how important it is, really how important it is to have multiple lenses represented and what I really stood out was the type of community you were serving. You're going to serve them better when you provide them with a conversation and easy communication because of our relatability and our shared experiences. So it's really important. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that happened in the most recent case that I worked up, which was a mass tort environmental justice case where the city of LA was leaking gas in a predominantly Latino community and they did that for three years. And when we were talking to the people in the community, it was really very much uh, going into people's homes who would reach out to us to want to get more information. we talked to them. Then they would say, you need to talk to my sister. You need to talk to my brother. They had similar situations happening to them. And let me bring in my neighbor or the people who are living in the back house. Like something similar happened. My My son was like dealing with nosebleeds for such a long time we had no idea what it was my daughter was suicidal my daughter was depressed and so all of these things were happening in this community that was impacted by this environmental injustice but it was the fact that I as a Latina I as someone who spoke Spanish I as someone who care about this community was speaking with them that allowed them to kind of open up and um, and share their stories and then share have their families and friends share their stories and get involved in this litigation. But it was getting out there and and people seeing me and trusting me and um, and really speaking their language uh, that made all the difference in the world. That's very powerful. And I'm glad you're talking about it with us and sharing that story. Also horrible that that was happening, but amazing that you were able to get down to the bottom of it and, and help. Yeah, and when I my girls, I have two girls, and they're both teenagers. And when um, I had them, I made a commitment that I would only speak Spanish to them. And and I said to them, one of the reasons is like this is your community. And my girls are black and brown. 
but Latina is very, very important. You have proud Latinas, proud black women. And so you need to be able to speak to your community so that if the community needs you, and if you're going to provide any kind of a service, then you need to be able to speak our language. That's amazing. Once again, just thank you for sharing that that detail in the way that you the way you approached that conversation with your daughters, I think is also very impactful. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, you're welcome. So going back to the conference, based on everything we talked about and 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 where we're headed with more conversation around these topics, what are you hoping that someone walks away with from attending? That they really have both an obligation and an opportunity to transform what the workforce looks like and how people come into it, how they participate in it, and how they transition from one place to another. Wonderful. Well, with you on the panel, I feel pretty confident that they will get that takeaway. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. So Sylvia, how can someone connect with you? Well, I... I always tell people, just call me, call me or text me. I'm so old school that way. That's old school attorney. (laughs) I am so old school. It's like, just call me. I I was just talking to actually someone this morning and, and she, you know, was asking me if I I could be her mentor. I said, absolutely. I said, but, and you can call me anytime. Just call me because I work so much better with a phone call than with an email. I know Mm -hmm. people. And I said, I, I have had to adapt from, you know, just generationally to this whole concept of emails and just responsive to being responsive to emails. But I I like people. I like talking to people. I like working with people directly. That's more impactful for me. And and I think I can connect better with people and people connect better with me. And uh, I mean, that you might think like, well, sort of, you can't have a bunch of people just calling you, but actually they can. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we are going to put your phone number in the show notes then <laughs> and, and they can call you if they, they want to connect. Yes. And I'll give you my cell phone because that's really the best number for people to call. <laughs> okay. That sounds great. Well, thank you so much for your time and for this very just deep and honest and authentic conversation around DEI and and what we're hoping to expect at the conference. Thank you so much, Christina. It's really a pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening to the Future of Work podcast. Make sure you're subscribed on your favorite listening platform so you can easily get new episodes every Tuesday. You can reach out to us by clicking on the website link below in the show notes to collaborate, partner, or just chat about all things Future of Work. We'd love to connect with you. All of us here at the Future of Work and Pasadena City College wish you safety and wellness.